On this episode of Tag of the Bees, it's The Day of the Beast, 1995 horror comedy directed by Alex de la Iglesia. It is a Spanish-spoken uh, film uh, with English subtitles, so be aware of that if you watch it. Uh, principal players in this is uh, Alex uh, Anhulo. I guess that's how you say his name. I'm going to butcher these. I'm sorry for that. Uh, he plays Father Angel. You have Santiago Segura, who plays Jose Maria who is a satanic death metal fan. And you have Armando de Raza, who, pray, who plays Professor Kavan, who is a TV psychic slash author. Uh, the plot of this movie is that Father Angel is a numerologist who has studied the book of Revelation and determined that it contains within it the date for the arrival of the Antichrist, which just happens to be midnight on Christmas Eve in Madrid. The only problem he has is he doesn't know exactly where the child will be born, so to be able to destroy the Antichrist, he has a plan. That plan is to commit as many sins as humanly possible to attract the attention of Satan himself so that he become one of the Dark Lord's inner circle and be entrusted with information about, about the whereabouts of the Antichrist. <laughs> Alrighty, good plan. Now It's a bold strategy. <laughs> That's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it works out for him. So if you can imagine a, a movie where a Catholic priest runs around committing sins like, you know, uh, ripping people off, burning himself with cigarettes after he commits master or after he masturbates himself, listens to death metal music, the, I mean that, you know, to him that's that's a sin, whatever. Like just a bunch of like these random sins. That's what you, that's the premise that this movie starts out with. Now along the way when he's trying to commit these sins, he goes into a record store to, to find some death metal, and he, he happens upon um, Jose Maria, who happens to own the record store, who's a part-time Satanist and a full-time metalhead. All right. And when when uh, Jose realizes that the, the the what the father's trying to do, he agrees to help him because you know uh, he's all about finding Satan, so he you know he wants to see he wants to see this through. So the two of them kind of gang up together, and they're kind of like the... Uh, I would describe their relationship, especially when uh, Professor uh, Kavan comes in later, as like almost like a bumbling, uh, you know, like Three Stooges type, you know, oh, uh, you know group. Um, they whatever Anything they try to pull off is usually flawed and usually goes badly for them. So the two of them start working together, find out that they're way in over their head, and, and they are because they have no idea what they're doing. So they happen to realize that there's a, a local TV psychic who talks about uh, demonic things and actually has a book on how to work or how to summon Satan. So they go to his place, break in, 
kidnap the guy and force him upon threat of torture to reveal how to actually summon Satan. And he even tells him during the thing, he's like, listen, guys, I'm fake. I made this shit up just so that I could sell books. And they're like, no. And then Father's, uh, Father Angel's like, no, you did this. We know that you know how to do this, so tell us. And he tells them, and lo and behold, he actually does know how to summon Satan because, and this is one of the, the best parts of this movie, they, they actually summon Satan, and it's a black goat, very reminiscent of Black Philip, who happens to end up Professor Kavan's apartment, uh, walks on his hind legs and, and addresses them, you know, in their native tongue. And basically, you know, tells them, it's like, you know, why did you summon, or ask him why you summoned me? And, the, you know, and Father Angel tells him, and he clearly sees through Father Angel. He's like, you know, you're you're not one of mine. You're an emissary of, you know, God. Like, I'm not going to reveal anything to you, basically. Piss off, loser. And he, he leaves. So that leaves them in a quandary about what they're going to do. They have to escape out of the building at that point because in the process of doing this, they knock the poor uh, Professor Kavan's uh, girlfriend uh, out in order to extract her blood because they need the blood of a virgin, okay. not realizing she, she wasn't a virgin. <laughs> And so she's reported them to the police, and so now they're having to escape, even Professor uh, Kavan. And so they have to scale down the side of a building, and I think Professor Kavan falls off of it and gets, like, severely injured in the process. And so, like, that leaves the two main characters to bumble their way through some more. They basically go through a bunch more of this shit. They uh, they run into the police some more uh, or try to avoid them. They, they go to a, a metal concert thinking that that place would be a good place to find somebody. Who'd, or, well, no, first of all, they go to a uh, uh, somebody who's, like, going over um, a book about or, like, some information about, I believe it was Revelations or something like that, thinking that he might have some more information. And... Um, in the process, he, you know, he tells them, he, uh, you know, they take over the conference he's giving. That that calls the police because they raise such a commotion. He doesn't know what the hell they're talking about because what he's talking about has nothing to do with that. They go to a metal concert thinking they might know. They still don't. And But all the while, Professor Kavan's actually doing his work on the side because he's interested now since he didn't believe in any of it at all to begin with and he was all just a fraud. <laughs> and now he's actually seen Satan appear. So he studies like some works that he has that are like some scrolls and stuff that he's accumulated and realizes that there's actually some information there that he can use. And he figures out the exact like that he, he realizes the devil uses like this symbology to, to represent things and like text. And so he uses that to decipher that there's a building in that town in Madrid that is shaped just like one of the symbols that is one of these demonic texts. And he realizes that's the building that the, the Antichrist has to be born in. And so they give that information out, and it goes from there. It's it's very uh, it's impressive at times. Was I mean, as low budget as it is, uh, some of the things they got by with the black goat in particular. But there was also like later in the film where these uh, looks like these mob bosses that that own the the building that they go to. They actually have like these demonic like faces or whatever that appear, and they're very well done. So I give it credit for that. The three main leads are interesting just because they're they're very charismatic. I mean, you actually you know give a shit about them you know toward the end of the movie, uh, even though they're bumbling idiots, all three of them. And um, I give it a recommendation. If I was gonna if I was gonna rate anything on our patented Nicholas Cage scale, I'd probably give this the the coveted Vampire's Kiss because it's just it's so campy and completely insane at times that it's that makes it entertaining regardless of the plot. Uh, just like seeing Nicolas Cage to the scenery as some psychotic person who thinks he's a vampire. If you've ever, you've seen the memes if you've not seen the movie that I'm talking about. His eyes all bugged out, so. Yeah. Oh my God. 
that's how I look right now listening to you talk about this film. <laughs> so I think it suits very well. I'm listening and I'm like, what the hell <laughs> is going on? <laughs> and that's how it's, I would look watching the film. There, there's a lot while of that shaking movie, my head, honestly. But just realize it is English subtitles, so there's a lot of reading if you're not a native Spanish speaking person. So <laughs> I don't speak Spanish, but I would understand it. Not to brag or anything. I speak the Spanish, maybe close to Latin. I don't know. Who knows? I might accidentally summon the devil. Who knows? Who knows? All right, tonight's feature presentation. Uh, we are discussing Needful Things, a 1993 film directed by Fraser Helton, uh, actually who's the son of Charlton Heston, uh, if, or I, I should have said Fraser Heston, son of Charlton Heston, a famous movie actor and uh, NRA uh, president, I believe, there for a while. Uh, this was actually Fraser uh, Heston's uh, debut film. Principal players in this movie, we have Max von Sydow, uh, or Sydow, however you pronounce his last name, uh, who plays Leland Gaunt, who's the main protagonist. Devil, question mark. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit later, but, you know, uh, he's that's kind of the character he's playing. Uh, Max von Sydow was uh, the... Uh, Obviously, in Exorcist one and two, we've we've discussed Exorcist one before. Uh, he was in the Seventh Seal, which is kind of a weird uh, German existentialist film. Strangely, he was in the movie, and I just bring this up for later trivia. He was in the movie The Greatest Story Ever Told, where he played Jesus. <laughs> so he went from playing Jesus to a priest to the devil. Okay, <laughs> look at his acting skills. They are broad. Okay. <laughs> he has been in other things. He was in Shutter Island with Leonardo DiCaprio. That's a fairly good film. Uh, and more recently, he was in Star Wars The Force Awakens, although he had just a bit part at the beginning of that film. And uh, that trilogy ended up being shit, in my opinion. So the less said about that, the better. Uh, next up, we have Ed Harris playing Alan Pangborn, the main protagonist. He has uh, been in a couple of different Stephen King movies, actually. Or, or uh, He was in Creepshow uh, in the uh, Father's Day segment, one of the most famous in the, the whole series. And he was also in Stephen King's The Stand with another actor that we'll be discussing uh, shortly in this movie. Uh, he was in uh, George Romero's Night Riders, which is a weird uh, movie that I, I want to I watch here uh, before too much longer about medieval or medieval style knights in current days riding motorcycles. So a little weird. <laughs> uh, and they go around like doing the okay. typical like dueling with lances and that sort of thing type setup. Real weird. Anyways, other horror movies he's been in is The Abyss. Uh, he played uh, in Nixon with another actor we'll be talking about. There's a lot of uh, people who worked on other projects working together in this movie. Uh, same thing in Apollo 13. He worked with somebody else. Uh, he was in A History of Violence in Appaloosa where he worked with uh, Viggo Mortensen on both of those. And uh, most currently, he was that I know of, he was in the Westworld TV series playing the great part of the Man in Black, which I, I loved him in that role. He was really good in that one. We have uh, J.T. Walsh, who played Danforth Buster Keaton III, Psycho, and... Don't call him Buster. <laughs> Buster, Buster, Buster. <laughs> Psycho, obviously, as we'll get to, and uh, almost a Renfield character. Somebody mentioned this on a blog that I was reading uh, some information about, but he really is. He's like the Renfield to uh, oh, the yeah. Dracula that is, uh, you know... <laughs> Absolutely is. I did not even think about that. <laughs> He was in another Stephen King movie prior to this. A lot of repeats. Uh, he was in Misery. 
or maybe I'm, he was in another Stephen King movie. I can't say it was before because I don't know the timeline on that, but he was in Misery. Uh, he was in another horror movie called The Babysitter. He was in Nixon with Ed Harris, as I was mentioning earlier. Uh, he was in Miracle on 34th Street, the, the 1994 version. Kind of weird. And uh, the the most current thing I saw that he was in was in Sling Blade. Okay. Got them French, French fried taters. Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> That's me rolling my eyes over the speaker box. <laughs> uh, we got Bonnie Bedelia uh, playing Polly Chalmers. Uh, she plays the love interest for the protagonist. and The only of, hot lady in town. Uh, basically, yes. And uh, she aged very well. And uh, Target for the villain. Yeah, kind of weird because she was prettier in this than the movie I was going to say that most people know her from, which is the Die Hard movies, one and two. Like, I believe she was prettier in this than she was in those, and that was like almost a decade apart. Probably, yeah. She was also in another Stephen King movie, Salem's Lot. Ooh, that's a good one. And very similar plot to this, actually. I mean, an antique dealer moves into town and is the, you know, face of true evil. Kind of a similar scenario. Uh, we have Amanda Plummer, who plays Nettie Cobb, fragile but nervous ticking time bomb that uh, ends up starting this whole thing. Part Well, she's partly to blame for it. Uh, she was on a run with this. Uh, previous to this movie, she did I Married an Axe Murderer, uh, yes. which was one of uh, Mike Myers' first movies. And she followed it up with Pulp Fiction. So that's a pretty good you know, r- run there that she had. She was also in The Prophecy, which we will be discussing uh, next episode. Uh, with Christopher Walken, and uh, she was in uh, Mimic 3, uh, Satan's Little Helper. Haven't you seen that one before? I thought you mentioned that one before. Which one? Satan's Little Helper. I don't think I've seen that one. Okay, maybe my kids have seen it. (laughs) Uh, She was in Red, which is the movie that I discussed uh, that one of the actors was in from The Last Attack of the Bees. Uh, that's that movie that's kind of a John uh, Wick ripoff or whatever where somebody's pet dies and they go, you know, whole hog in the justice trying to kill them. And most currently, and that's right now current, she's in the Ratched Netflix series. So. Oh, okay. Which actually, based on the cover, looked kind of cool. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a really dark twist on like the prequel to uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Anybody's interested in that. And then uh, we have Ray McKinnon playing Deputy Norris Ridgwick, uh, who's the sidekick in the Barney Fife of the movie and in the book. He was also in The Stand with uh, Ed Harris, uh, which is another Stephen King you know, film. So, like I said, a lot of repeats uh, working with each other and also in Stephen King movies. He was in uh, my uh, and in Apollo 13 with Ed Harris. He, My favorite role that I remember from all the time, and I quoted from all the time just because it's so hilarious, is uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? He plays the uh, fiancé to uh, <laughs> George Clooney's uh, wife in the movie. I don't know if you've seen that, but uh, that that little fight they have towards the end of the movie is probably one of the best things in that movie. I I have, but I just don't remember that. I have to rewatch the movie, honestly. There, there's a part later in the movie when he gets back in the town and he sees the little war, warbly girls, or warby girls, I guess is their name, which is his daughters, and he follows them back to uh, the Woolworths where his wife sat, and he wants to know, he's demanding of her, want to know why she said, telling their their kids that he was run over by a train, and, you know, and then in the middle of that, Ray McKinnon walks over in this, like, pencil-thin mustache and one of those little flat box hats or whatever that were common at the time, and he's got this real, (laughs) real put-on southern accent, 
And he's like, hey, 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 you don't talk to my fiancé like that. You know, and like it's... Oh, my God. <laughs> it's just hilarious. Like, they're having this little fight, and then, like, you know, George Clooney gets his ass kicked. But anyways, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he was also a driving Miss Daisy with... Um, Another Stephen King alum, uh, you know, that movie had Morgan Freeman in it, which was Shawshank Redemption. He was in Footloose, and he's he was in uh, several newer movies. He was in Mud with uh, Matthew McConaughey, and recently he was in News of the World, which is the 2020 Tom Hanks film, and Chaos Walking, which is the uh, newest movie that came out this year that uh, has, like, the uh, new Spider-Man in it, and... Uh, and Ray from the Star Wars movies uh, in that one. Kind of a sci-fi thriller. Mm. Okay. And this last one I'm just throwing on here just because this is interesting based upon our previous episodes. We have Shane Meyer who's playing Brian Rusk. The interesting thing about I noticed about him when I was looking through IMDb is that he was in Stay Tuned. I see this. Oh, my God. I literally just clicked on it. And he was in the little Yogi Beer commercial. It's like, uh, hit me with another one, dude, you know, or whatever. It's like, and then you know, he's crushing the beer can, and it's like, you know, beer for kids. I just thought that was kind of funny. Just, okay, I have to point this out. If you're looking at this kid, he was a kid in Needful Things, and obviously in Stay Tuned. And I'm looking at an adult photo of him. He looks identical. He did not age. <laughs> he didn't age one bit, like as far as like his no. facial features. But that's basically the, I mean, this movie's loaded with character or actors, and that's part of the problem we'll get into later. And I'm going to say that as a spoiler as far as my critiques. But, I mean, those are the main ones. Those are the ones that, you know, stand out for their parts. And um, I think with that, introducing the main uh, actors of the movie, we'll move on to uh, a little section I like to call the Castle Rock Universe slash Timeline. Not to be confused with the Dan Cummins uh, timeline that he does on his show. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we start out, if we're, if we're uh, there is a ton of Stephen King books or stories that are sto- uh, set in the Castle Rock uh, town, basically, or mention it. I mean, most of his Might books. Might as well call it Castle Rock Universe, that, honestly. Yeah, I mean, there, a lot of his uh, books or mention Castle Rock in passing, especially like it, and you know, because all those towns are close to each other. The town of Harlow that had. Salem's Lot is right beside Castle Rock, as Derry's just up the road. I mean, they're all close to each other. But these movies directly are all, or I mean, or these books and movies uh, all directly are set in Castle Rock that I'm going to be discussing today. And I've tried to arrange them in the timeline as Stephen King set them up. There's a few more that don't contain like anything, uh, any reference to needful things, so I kind of left them out, but they're out there just in case anybody's wondering. The first one would be The Body, which was set in 1960. And the movie version of that is uh, goes by the name of Stand By Me, which is very famous. Uh, it started the kids on bike genre in general. Oh, I mean, yeah. it is the movie along with Goonies that Stranger Things has based its whole whole entire you know genre on. Uh, you have River Phoenix, uh, Jerry O'Connell, who you know later played the Satanic Panic that I covered as one of the episodes. Uh, Will Wheaton. Will Wheaton, as they say on uh, Family Guy, and uh, <laughs> Corey Feldman, who has been, I mean, any 80s fan uh, of horror or, like, you know, just movies in general knows Corey Feldman. He was in everything. So probably why he's so messed up today, honestly, but that's a subject for another day when we discuss one of his movies. This movie in particular, the reason it, not only did it, is it set in Castle Rock in the in the 60s, but it features a character named Ace Merrill, who was played by Kiefer Sutherland in the film, who would go on to be a part of the book 
and we'll get into it, was almost a part of the movie of Needful Things. He, he would have played a much better foil to Alan Payneborn than what Buster Keaton is, and we'll get into that. The next movie in the timeline of the universe is The Dead Zone. That was uh, set in 1974, uh, at least the segment that was, you know, involved Castle Rock because it, it, it takes place over a time period. Uh, it involves Johnny Smith, uh, played by Christopher Walken, played really well by Christopher Walken, actually, in the movie version, who suffers an accident that gives him psychic powers. And basically what he does that ties to Castle Rock is he, he gets petitioned by George Bannerman, played by Tom Skerritt in the movie, to uh, come solve the case of the Castle Rock Strangler. Well, it's the Strangler in the book, but in the movie he stabs him with a pair of scissors, but, you know, potato, potato, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, <laughs> but he, he's, he's brought on to help him because he can't figure out who's doing the killings. And spoiler alert, it ends up being the deputy who works directly under George Bannerman who's been doing all the killings. And the reason that he's never been caught is because he goes in and cleans up after himself whenever the, the evidence, you know, uh, comes to light. You know, he, he takes, he goes in the evidence locker, he gets rid of it. You know, he does what he has to do to keep from getting caught. And so the, the only way it gets solved is by the psychic powers that, you know, Johnny has, and that's, and that, you know, but the, the two main things to take away from this is George Bannerman and Frank Dodd. Those, those are the links that ties into the later parts of this universe. So we move on from that to 1980. Very famous movie. Everybody knows it. Cujo. Woo. Love that movie. Donna and Tad Trenton go to the Camber farm uh, to get Donna's car fixed and in the process are terrorized by rabid St. Bernard. I mean, you know, this movie's iconic. If anybody thinks of Stephen King, they think of this movie nine times out of ten. I mean, you, you might get some of his other movies, but when somebody mentions The Rabid Dog, it's, I mean, forget Old Yeller, it's Cujo. I mean, he's forever the rabid dog, you know, that everybody thinks of. Cujo is a good boy, and I think you need to stop talking about him so disrespectfully. <laughs> well, I'll get into that later. I mean, Cujo comes back several times in this timeline. Yes. And that's the reason he... This movie, more than any of them, is probably the linchpin. And the reason for that is this, even though it's set in 1980 and is almost direct center of the timeline, is the first mention of Castle Rock in Stephen King's series of novels and story. It, or at least it's the first one set in Castle Rock. I take that back. I think Dead Zone mentioned it. It was the very first time it was mentioned, but Cujo was the very first time it was set in Castle Rock. So that's the reason all the other ones reference this, because it's the quintessential story in the timeline. Wait, you're talking about Cujo? Yes. Okay, I just want to make sure we're splicketing the same lingity. So the bodies, you know, came after Cujo. It was written afterward, even though it was set farther back in the timeline as far as like, you know, just how the events happened. But Cujo is the very first book or series or fictional thing that Stephen King set in Castle Rock proper. You know, he they visited Castle Rock in Dead Zone, but it was the first, Cujo was the first time that it was actually set there. And so the things that you get out of this is is you get Joe Camber, who comes back later in a lot of things. George Bannerman's back in this from the Dead Zone. That's where the link between it and the Dead Zone is. It's actually, he's killed by Cujo in this. So that's, you, you get introduced to George, the poor, short, poor sheriff George Bannerman in the Dead Zone, and then you see him leave this life in Cujo. And a weird little extra quirk that ties it to the Dead Zone is the fact that Tad uh, thinks that uh, the evil spirit that lives in his closet is the is the spirit of Frank Dodd, the serial killer that Johnny Smith uh, helped capture back, you know, whenever he was uh, visited Castle Rock. So it's got Frank Dodd and George Bannerman in this. 
Okay, so that was a serial killer that killed the women in Castle Rock that was mentioned. Ye- yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So to kind of go back, just streamline a little bit. First mention of Castle Rock is in The Dead Zone. First book that's set in Castle Rock proper is Cujo. So moving on from that. All right. Uh, you've got a little short story called Mrs. Todd's Shortcut. This is a weird little story. Timeline doesn't really, it's hard to peg. It's it's after 1982 because uh, Cujo takes place in around 1980. And it's at least set a year or two after what happened in Cujo because I'll get to that in a second. But it takes place before the dark half. So it's, it's between 1982 and 1989. Okay. It's a, kind of a fantastical tale about this old man who's sitting at the local gas station, you know, kind of... That's where he kind of hangs out, and he's he hears a story about this Mrs. Todd, who is this crazy, uh, crazy older lady who is obsessed with finding the shortest distance between the two locations. Like she's always wanting to find the shortcut that gets her there the quickest. Okay. Well, it turns out she is so good at that that she's actually traveling between universes because she starts she starts traveling into this uh, weird in between world that has almost Lovecraftian overtones to it. There's all these uh, horrific creatures and, and that sort of thing. And the main character, the old man, takes a ride with her one night, feels like he barely survives it because she's like, you know, she's enjoying herself the entire time, but he's like, you know, all these things, these like bat-like creatures, these horrible things are like, you know, smacking her car. She's driving through there, you know, kind of like Mr. Toad, you know, and that sort of thing. <laughs> you know, she's just happily cackling and she's going, you know, on her merry way. And the interesting thing is, is that she's aging in reverse. Oh. And because he takes the ride with her, he starts aging in reverse. Hmm. And so it's it's got all that. But the, the link that puts it, I mean, and it's set in Castle Rock. And the link for that is when he's sitting at the gas station, he... He talks about Joe Camber and his dog. Like, that's the reference. It's like, oh, you know, we remember, you know, old Joe Camber and his dog, you know, like, you know, what happened there. So it's it, it references Cujo, and it's set in Castle Rock. Of course. The Dark Half comes after this, and this sets up the proper prequel to Needful Things, in a sense. Or actually, no, or it's, it's the first in the trilogy of stories that sets up Needful Things. So Dark Half was in 1989. And it's about Thad Beaumont, who is a writer. Stephen King's protagonist are nine times out of ten writers. If you find any other protagonist, it's usually a short story or, you know, it's a sheriff. And we'll get to that in a second. So Thad Beaumont is a writer and his alter ego is is, uh, being exposed by this punk or whatever who found out that he, because he writes under another name named George Stark and he writes these really graphic, violent stories under the name George Stark and he, but he's also a college professor and he's afraid that if that information gets out there it might affect people's opinion of him in the collegiate world and that sort of thing hmm kind of like the Reverend Dr. Death and La Arena <laughs> kind of like that also like <laughs> also like Stephen King himself because he also wrote under a pseudonym so a lot of people might not realize that but there uh some of his older stories like The Rage and and some other uh, in that series uh, he, I think he wrote like four or five books were written under a pseudonym and they're really dark. Like they're the, the only story he wrote that was almost as dark as far as the tone of them goes is uh, pet cemetery. And that, that, and that's the only Stephen King book that's anywhere near the kind of level of just like nihilistic, hateful, just general tone that he wrote with under that pseudonym. So I think that's what this is, you know, where he based this off of. 
So anyways, in the story, and it turns out in the story that Thad Beaumont is not successful as a writer himself, but George Stark is bringing in all the money. That's what people want to read. So when he has to kill George Stark off, it's kind of going to hurt him in the wallet a lot, but he does it anyways just to get out ahead of it. So he throws this mock funeral for his, uh, you know, alter ego, not realizing that by doing that, he's inviting the thing that was Stark in his mind to come to uh, reality. And I mean, because he's giving it life by doing that. Now there's a whole other subplot. What the hell? Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of like the thing of a topa. You give thing power by giving it a name, giving it, you know, like presence. There's a lot of, uh, you know, when we talk about like dolls and stuff, that's why, you know, you don't ever want, I mean, dolls are, can kind of be like the embodiment of like, or can hold like evil spirits within them because you're giving them a vessel to live in. And by him throwing this mock funeral, he's inviting this, you know, spirit, in a sense, to come to reality of George Stark. But here's where the twist comes in. The reason that George Stark has a spirit to begin with is because he was actually a, a, a twin of Thad's in utero that was absorbed into Thad. Oh, shit. And what Thad doesn't realize is that he started having some seizures when he was a kid. And whenever they did the surgery to finally, you know, relieve the seizures, they found that there was a tumor on his brain and it had an eyeball, some teeth, and some fingernails. And it was, and and it's a real world phenomenon. You can grow like fingernails and teeth and like tumors. Yeah. Isn't that like a conjoined twin, basically? Something like that? Well, there's that, but I'm saying there's also another whole other weird thing that humans can have, which is a tumor that actually grows fingernails and teeth. That's like a whole... Are you fucking for real? I'm for real. Like, they cut open the tumor, and it's got, like, teeth and nails in there. It's like, you know... So... I thought that was still conjoined. I guess not. This is all news to me. So, when he has that fake burial, there's actual pieces of his twin that are out there in the, you know, in in the ground somewhere. And that brings this whole thing, you know, to fruition where George Stark becomes a dark entity that starts killing people that are particularly those, anytime that somebody is pissed that off, they get killed by Stark. And it's kind of, you know, that's where the dark half story, you know, the, the title comes from. That's pretty cool. Now, the link in all this... It's a good story, and it's a good concept. And there's also a, a thing they introduced in this that I never heard of before, which is actually a thing called a psychopomp, and it's like this uh, animal that is responsible for delivering the spirits of the dead to from our reality into the afterlife, and that's kind of like an Egyptian-type thing. And any time that Thad starts uh, having any kind of, like, George Stark's, like, presence around, these swarms of birds are, can be seen, you know? And so... That's that's kind of a signal that George Stark's at work whenever the birds are flying because they're bringing Stark's presence from the afterlife into our reality, basically. So and that's actually pretty fucking cool. That's a really cool story, and it's one that we'll cover the movie of too. But this movie, this book, introduces Alan Pangborn. This is where Alan comes in. Yes, I see that. And he is the new sheriff of Castle Rock. Obviously, he took over when Bannerman was killed by Cujo. And he's the one that's involving or investigating the Stark murders. Now, he originally thinks it's Thad because all the prints are Thad's. But when he finds out that Thad had a twin in utero, and then they find, then whenever he actually sees for himself that George Stark is a thing, that's when things get twisted for Painborn. And that's his first introduction to the supernatural. Now, in the. I did not (laughs) know all of these were tied together so well. I mean, it's all outlined. I'm looking at an outline right now. Holy shit, it all makes so much sense. Now, Michael Rooker, going back to Merle, played the uh, Alan Pangborn in this movie, in the movie version. 
And this movie was directed by George Romero, and it's one of his better films that he did outside the Dead series. So, I mean, it, it's it's a George Romero film. Got Michael Rooker as the as Alan Painborn. He plays a different Painborn. It's it's a very, I mean, I feel like Michael Rooker plays a very, you know, straight down the you know path kind of like a no nonsense type character. And we'll get into it, but Ed Harris plays a more lighthearted character, and I think Ed Harris got the the gist of the character a little bit better. But Rooker plays the part well enough in this just because the shit that he's dealing with is just unbelievable. And I mean, since he's so straightened by the book and his performance anyways, it works because he's, you know, whenever he actually does start realizing the supernatural is a thing, it basically blows his fucking mind. So, I mean, you know. Yes, but in the movie, to be fair to both actors, the movie specifically made it seem like he came to Castle Rock, Pangborn, he was a changed man from where he came from, which I believe was Ohio. They well in the movie they mention that he's from Pens- Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Okay. I think is where they say he's from. In the movie that is not in the book. He is not from Pennsylvania. He is from Maine. I don't think. I think he's from a bigger city in Maine, but he's not from. You know, that's a weird twist they did. I don't know why they threw that in there. That's. I mean, they could have had him in. Uh, you know, one of the bigger like you know cities in Maine, and it would have worked just as well. But whatever. I mean. Absolutely. Yeah. So next in the timeline is The Sun Dog, set in 1990, just a year after The Dark Half. It is a short story about a haunted Polaroid camera that the main protagonist, uh, whenever he takes a picture, uh, no matter what he takes a picture of, it only produces one image, and it's of this evil black dog that's standing in front of like some kind of building or a fence or something like that, and every time he takes a picture, the dog keeps getting closer and closer and closer to the camera, like he's running toward the person taking the picture. A hellhound, it sounds like. Yeah, which is funny. And was it a Rottweiler? It was not a, uh, well, it wasn't a St. Bernard, if that's what you're saying, like Cujo. I, I don't remember. I think it's like a German Shepherd, but I, it could be it could be a Rottweiler. It's it's one of those two breeds, I think. Yeah. This is this features Alan Pangborn again, so it's the middle of the trilogy. And he is, uh, he's. I think he's got a bit part in it. It mostly features Reginald Pop Merrill, who is the owner of the Emporium Glorium, which is like a local business in Castle Rock. Turns out it's right across the street from where Needful Things is set up later on. So it's like, you know, uh, I, I believe, uh, I'll get in that second, but I think this, the fact that the Emporium Glorium disappears sets up the, the where Gaunt can move in, basically. And, of course, since it mentions Pop Merrill, it mentions his... Uh, shit pieces uh, of a nephew, Ace Merrill, who's his only surviving uh, relative, who Alan Pangborn has sent to Shawshank for, I think, a few uh, months to it. I think it's maybe a few years, actually. So so you get the Shawshank, you know, redemption kind of mixed in there. You get Alan Pangborn, you get Ace Merrill, and you get the Emporium Glorium, and those all factor into needful things. Pop's place in the process of all this gets burned down because he... He, he buys the camera off of the protagonist before the dog actually appears. And then just for, out of curiosity, he takes a final picture with it. And of course the dog comes out and, you know, uh, the protagonist is barely able to, uh, uh, Pop gets killed and the protagonist is just barely able to put the dog back in another camera before it's unleashed on the world, basically. So that's kind of the gist of the story. So then we go on to Needful Things, which we'll be discussing today. I'm not going to get into much about it, but it was set in 1991. It's the, it's technically the end of the Castle Rock, you know, series. Aww. That's what it was. That's what it was. Uh, you know, proclaimed to be on the book at least, and that's what Stephen King intended it for. But there's one more story after this, set in 1993 
called It Grows on You, and this was a short story, and he's and King considers it to be his epilogue to Needful Things. It doesn't really feature much of anything from the story. It might mention some of the things that happened as far as the town getting destroyed and that sort of thing. But the the story itself is mainly about this haunted house that every time somebody dies within its interior, the house gets bigger. It's kind of a mix of like the murder house from the first season. <laughs> oh my God, I was just about to say <laughs> that. Because anybody who dies in the house becomes a spirit in the house. They cannot leave. So it's kind of... Oh, it's, okay. So wait, they have to die in the house? They die in the house and the house grows and then the then the spirits are trapped within it. And so it's it's like Murder House on you know the very first season of American Horror Stories kind of a, mixed with Haunting of Hill House on Netflix if you've seen that. It's you know kind of the same gist. If you die within the house, you'll never leave the house. That is your purgatory, that is your forever home basically after that. And it's it's just basically this rundown building in Castle Rock, and most of the town is destroyed as a result of needful things. Okay, so I have a question, and I don't know if you have the answer, but first off, that's pretty awesome that the house grows because, I mean, <laughs> you got to make room, okay? Why should all these spirits be living so, like, peasants, okay? Very courteous of the house to do that. Second, if a house is... If this is a rundown building, is there a specific reason why people are going into it and dying? I, I've not actually read the story. I was going based upon the, the description of it. I think that the people who were the, in, involved in the actual story itself, the reason they're going in it is because whoever was in the house previously abused them as children, and they're going in there to kind of deal with their demons or their oh, tempted shit. back. They're tempting. They're tempted back for some reason because of the demons that they suffered as children. And now, when the house claims them, you know, not only did they did they suffer that abuse, but now they're you know permanently a fixture within that house along with their abuser. Basically, I think is the gist of the story. The tormented become the tormentors. Yeah. Oh my God, that's fucked up, but a really good story. But that ends the basically the universe. There's a few more stories set in Castle Rock, ones that he's even came out with recently with another uh, author. But they have more of a connection with with. Oh yeah, I see that. They even but they have more of a connection with his uh, the Stand series than they do anything else because they mention basically a character that's Randall Flagg. So there's really there's no there's less to do with Alan Payneborn and the other people and Cujo and all that. Is it's just you know it's it's kind of more of an offshoot of the Stand in a sense which every Stephen King story is considered part of the Dark Tower universe because they're all linked to the Dark Tower. It's the central... It's the cent- and, I, and I bring all this up because Stephen King really was one of the first people to, to really conceive of the idea of this universe-type setting outside of comic books. He grew up on comic books. That's probably where he got the idea from. But, I mean... I'm not talking about just, uh, you know, there's plenty of authors that did A, B, C, and D, you know, like they did, you know, like, you know, book one of the whatever trilogy or whatever. That's that's fine. That's not what I'm talking about. These were independent books. They only shared characters in name or in reference. They're not really continuations of the same story at all. Like they're completely different, but they they build a universe because they pull in things from the other books as far as like just setting the world up and that's that's what and I feel like Stephen King was one of the first people to really do that you know before all this is in vogue like it is now with the MCU and that sort of thing yeah and you know what I was so you're talking about this universe and you're giving me all these details and 
I I was so young when I started reading Stephen King books, and I had no business reading them at the age that I was. And then watching the movies, I never noticed this, honestly. And now that I'm kind of revisiting this, oh my God, yes, I, uh, holy shit, like, I can't believe I never noticed. Of course, you never really catch those details as a kid, you know? I did want to say real quick, you didn't throw this in. I was looking at the Wikipedia list and kind of following with you. The timeline of Castle Rock. And there's a short story called Nona, which blew my mind because that's my daughter's name. I'm just going <laughs> to fucking say it. And it's about this guy, basically a short synopsis of it. It's about this guy that is reflecting on his life. And he was in prison and he was kind of seduced by a beautiful girl named Nona while hitchhiking. And basically Nona is a character that lures men into graveyards and turns into a fucking rat. Yes, yes. Uh, Yeah, that's the one. Okay. And it turns out, I guess, that Nona is just a figment of his insanity, which pretty much sounds like my Nona. And I'm like, wow, look at that. <laughs> yeah, I left that one out just because it didn't connect. But there's that and there's Uncle, Otto, Uncle Otto's truck. Oh, there's yeah, a few. And, and Uncle Otto's truck is kind of like a, another story riff off a riff of the like, you know, Christine, you know, um, uh, Maximum Overdrive or Trucks, uh, you know, is the book version. It, there's, it, there's a lot of uh, different ones like that, but they don't really tie in per se other than the Castle Rock. Exactly. I had to bring it up because that's my child's name and I'm over here like, great, great, awesome. I'm going to tell her because I'm really interested to hear what she has to say about that. I'm sure she'll have a few things to say. If you enjoyed this episode of Death Holler, the timeline of Castle Rock, please look forward to our next episode where we review needful things. Death Holler is brought to you by Los Diablos Blancos Network with your hosts, Reverend Dr. Death and La Arena. Please like, subscribe, follow, and share. And if you feel so obliged, please consider giving us a review on iTunes. It really helps the show out. We'll catch you next time. And don't forget to bring your death certificate.